Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turned to them. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. Before we start, let me open us up in prayer. Lord, another difficult passage, and you uh, continue to give us these throughout the Gospel of Luke. And I pray, God, that your grace, your mercy, your love comes through, that I don't misrepresent Uh, your heart uh, delivering this sermon uh, as you love every single person here. God, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And I have a question for everyone. What are you doing with your life? If you want to just ponder that a little bit, because we all have a birth date. And uh, if you're listening to this message right now, you're alive, unless you're one of those zombies. So we all have birth dates, but we also all have death days. I would think most of us haven't experienced yet. And so, so we have this arrival date, and we have a departure date. Now, in between those dates, what have we done? What are we doing? What will we be doing? And, you know, people make big deals about birthdays and when people die, right? The, the birth is just a really exciting thing, and people mark that, and you celebrate that every year, and people mark when you die, memorials. You know, they have a memorial for you. But the big deal within a person's life, isn't that in the middle? We celebrate the beginnings and we celebrate the endings, but isn't the most significant part of someone's life the middle? So what are we doing with our lives between the bookends of the beginning of our life and our death? So who do we invest our lives into? What do we use our resources to invest towards our time, our energy? See, these are important questions to ask because I I think how we live now, right now in the present, is a really strong indicator of whether heaven's going to feel like home to you. Back in 1994, I went on a medical mission to minister to the Kofan Indians uh, in, the, in the jungles of Ecuador. And part of the preparation for that trip was to study missionaries and study about ministries that were happening there already. And so during my prep for this mission, um, it was suggested to read about Jim Elliot. So we read some of Elizabeth Elliot's, that's his widow, some of her books. And one of them was Shadow of the Almighty, and the other one was Through the Gates of Splendor. And so you talk about a really, really godly woman. Elizabeth Elliot was a regular visitor at the church I went to down in Southern California. And every time I walked by her, I felt like I had to take my shoes off. Like she's a, She was just such a godly woman. There's very few people who I felt that same presence. Another woman that, that I felt that from was uh, Mama Maggie, who's serving out in Egypt when we were there. And in her presence, I sensed that through like video. I wasn't even in her presence. She was so godly. But if you're not a reader and you want to watch a movie about that, there's, there are a couple movies about uh, Jim Elliot and the, him as a martyr, uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor and End of the Spear. In our preparation for the mission, I came across this uh, famous quote from Jim Elliot, and a lot of you probably already know it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I find that a very fitting quote to the scripture that we're looking at this morning. 
You recall that Jesus was at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees having a meal. And, and what we have happening between verses 24 and 25 is this transition from when he's leaving this ruler of the Pharisees' house and he's headed towards Jerusalem. Now something to keep in mind is that Jesus' mission wasn't about building a big church or uh, constructing great crowds to follow him. And how different that is uh, from our churches nowadays, isn't it? We just kind of look to continue to build and build this machine and build this organizations. Churches that will do whatever it takes to attract those great crowds into their buildings. But it's not so with Jesus. More often than not, Jesus turns around and he confronted these large crowds who followed him. And he essentially said, you guys don't get it. You don't understand what it means to really follow me. And so Jesus reminded them what it meant to follow him repetitively he kept doing this you look back to luke chapter 6 verses 12 through 13 in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to god and when day came he called his disciples keep that in mind it's plural and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles did you catch that he called his disciples there was a bunch of them And from that group, he chose from them 12. So Jesus had many people who were following him, many who were called disciples, and out of those, he chooses 12. The Bible doesn't explicitly describe this scene, but what I think is happening here is that the 12 that he chose, yes, he prayed about them all night long, but they stayed. You know, Jesus kept on talking about these things. You know, you got to know what it means to follow me. You got to know what it means to follow me. And they're all hearing this. And I think Jesus is continually telling them this. And those 12 stayed. And I think Jesus reminded them, you know, it will cost you a lot to follow me. And so I think all these disciples heard this. I think that some of them actually even left. It doesn't say that. It's just my thought. That some of them left, but the ones that he did choose out of the 12, they stayed and they followed Jesus. Now, there's an example of this in John chapter 6, when Jesus told his followers, you know, I'm the bread of life from heaven. And he he goes on this huge dissertation about how he's the bread of life. And then there were these Jews who grumbled about what Jesus said, and this is what they asked. How can this man give us flesh to eat? They didn't understand that. They They thought he was just talking about cannibalism. And so Jesus taught these things in a synagogue in Capernaum. Now, let's pick up in verse 60 of John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus didn't water anything down. And he didn't because eternity is at stake. Your life everlasting is at stake. We cannot water anything down as disciples of Jesus and as a church. We can't do that. Your life is too short. The bookends of your life, that is too short. I can't water anything down from the Word of God from this pulpit. Regardless of how things are happening out there in the church, the Lord continues to bless us and I'm glad. But if it were an offensive language and people were going out the doors, I can't change that. If our church was just interested in growth, I wouldn't be going through the Gospel of Luke. Hell, judgment, We wouldn't talk about those things. Those are not popular subjects. We wouldn't talk about the cost of discipleship to Jesus Christ, the cost to follow Jesus, because that would deter people that are just on the fringes, that are just kind of interested, from following. But that would make us really, really dishonest about the Word of God. 
That's not how Jesus did things. Jesus was really upfront about what it took to be a disciple of His. He's not interested in fans. There are a lot of fans in Indianapolis right now. But there are only 12 on the field at one time. Jesus is interested in players. Active participants. Not just fans. Yay! You're saying great things. What a thing to say, Jesus. He wants you to play. Get in there. Get in there. Let's get playing. Someone, you know, and if you're here and you're just like, well, you know, I'm just kind of like checking it out. That's all right. You can be a curious onlooker for a while, but eventually you got to play. You can't be a fan for life. It doesn't work that way. You have to move from spectator to active player. You have to. That's what being a Christian is. And I wonder how often the disciples, you know, they're going with Jesus and how much they just kind of flinched when Jesus said some harsh words. You know, they must have felt all this momentum, right? All these times, there are a ton of times when they're saying large crowds were gathering, large crowds were following. All these different times that Jesus had these large crowds. And then Jesus turns around and He says something. And so... I kind of wonder what the disciples were thinking when they were seeing these large crowds, like in our scripture this morning. Man, check this out. This is awesome. We're going to get somewhere. We're going to take over the Roman government. Man, we're, we're going big. And they're just high-fiving right there. And they're going, oh, like that. They're doing all this kind of stuff. You know, they're, they're all these kind of things. And, and then Jesus stops the momentum to like this screeching halt. And, and then he, he, he turns back and he tells the people something. And he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And they're like, what? Don't talk about narrow doors. Just talk about big doors. Everybody come in. You know, everyone's here already. You know, Jesus, you know, that's not the best way to get all these people with us. You know? And Jesus is like, that's the truth. That's the truth. I, I can't lie to them. I can't lie to you guys to say that the, the, the way is wide. And, and anyone comes through. If all Jesus wanted was to gather large crowds of people to Him, He wouldn't have to say any of this stuff. He would just keep going along and they would just keep amassing. But He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. See, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything when your everlasting life is at stake. Your everlasting life is at stake. So much so that He's willingly choosing to die for you in order for you to have a loving relationship, an everlasting relationship with His Holy Father. He's willing to do that. He designed that. See, Christianity is not like an Apple agreement. You know what I mean? You know that small print? When you purchase your uh, iPad or your uh, iPhone or your Mac Air or whatever, and, and you're, you're going through the stuff, and then it has this thing, page whatever out or whatever, and you're just like, I just want to use my machine. And you just go, next, 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 next. You don't read any of that. So you're going to next, 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 until you find the box, agree. You don't read anything. You just click it until you click agree. This is not how Jesus works. This, you, you don't just click agree. Right? He wants you to know what you're getting into. He wants you to count the cost in following Him. But in doing that, you're going to realize also the cost not to follow Him. Because that's important too. And so, Satan and the world and Apple don't do that. They don't do that. They give you this bill of goods without you looking at the fine print. They know you don't read that. They want us to buy into what they're offering. So the world and, and, and the powers of darkness, they're, they're selling us, you know, here's your life package. Here's your freedom package. This is your happiness package. And they got all this type of stuff. And what the enemies of God offer, seem, they seem really attractive on the surface. Man, this stuff works great. It goes instantly to the cloud. You know, and so... And you, and you sign up for all this stuff, but it's not until you're at the point where the fine print matters, the fine prints of life that you signed up for, and you know what? We all actually die, and there's a fine print to that. And so, when you sign up for that fine print, that this is life, and you find out that, oh, I die? 
And you find out that there's this package, this freedom package, but what you actually signed up for and what you actually agreed to was a bondage package. And you, you signed up for this happiness package and you just clicked next and you signed up, I agree, but what you actually signed up for was a misery package. See, there is no fine print in a relationship with Jesus. You're not going to get this sneaked up thing upon you. Like, oh, I didn't know I had to do that. I have to cut my left arm off? You, you know, you're not going to get something like that. Everything you need to know, in the Bible. Everything. And some of you might be thinking, like, that's a lot of fine print right there. That's a... <laughs> it's available, though. It's all there. You know, read it. It's all there. It's all in the Bible. And this is where we, we find what we find in the Scriptures addressing us today. Verses 25 and 26. Now great crowds accompanied Him, and He turned and said to them. So you get the picture. Jesus has these big crowds. The disciples are excited. Like, man, look at this. We just came from the rule of the Pharisees' house, and we're getting this. This is awesome. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. And you can just see the disciples like, no, like, one of the, no. and then he, and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be his disciple. Like, ah, man. And so the disciples, they probably they were just wincing like, Jesus, you had this great crowd coming. You had to say that. Why, why are you saying that? I mean, you could have just said, thank you for coming. <laughs> or, or welcome. Why don't, why'd you say things like that? Why do you say that? Hate your mom and your pops. Hate your brother and sister. Hate your children. Some of them are like, yeah, hate my children. And, and what are you doing? But some of the married couples are probably like, yeah, I hate you. Yeah, I'm going to follow him. But think about the people in the crowd. Think about the people in in this great crowd. A lot of parents in there who dearly love their children. A lot of families in there with their parents there who dearly love their parents, who dearly love their siblings. Right? And you're telling me that if I follow you, I have to hate all these people. What? I don't get it. Now, Jesus is making a significant point here. And it's similar to what we were getting at in verse 12 when he said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. See, Jesus was not saying, don't invite your friends and family over for dinner. He was using this as a figure of speech. He's using this to make a point. It's a matter of priority. This is priority, that being a disciple of Jesus is is so paramount that even your most loving, your most intimate of relationships would be such a distant second that that looks like hatred. It is so far behind that that looks like hatred, where our love for Jesus is so far ahead that any other love, that that love looks like hate. See, he's not telling us to hate those whom we actually love. He's not saying that. In fact, he's telling us to even love those whom we hate. Doesn't he? Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. See, we're to love our enemies. We're to love our parents, love our spouse, love our children, love our siblings, love ourselves. But no love is comparable to the love that we have as a disciple of Jesus Christ to Him. Everything else is such a distant second. That looks like hatred. Elizabeth Elliot, she loved her missionary parents, who she left to go to college, but then to go on the mission field. And she loved Jim, who she was serving with as a missionary. And she loved that... 10-month-old baby who lost her dad and was now going to raise her as a single mother. And she loved her four brothers and she loved her sister whom she left to serve God. And she even loved the very tribe that killed her husband. She loved them so much that she went back and she served them, teaching them and sharing with them the gospel. 
But even all of that, it pales in comparison to the love she has as a disciple of Jesus Christ. She loves Jesus even more. If you have someone in your life that is so unhealthy for you emotionally, socially, physically, spiritually, they're just so draining on you that you don't have much more to give to God, perhaps you aren't a disciple of Christ. You're just giving them too much. That Christ doesn't have you. If you have a career that pulls your loyalties away from God, your priorities are misplaced. Jesus didn't leave a lot of gray area here. He didn't say, if you didn't do these things as well, well, you you might not be a disciple. He's pretty black and white here. If God is not your priority, the love of your life, what's most paramount to you, so much so that everything else looks like hate in comparison, you cannot be my disciple. Not maybe. You cannot be. You cannot love anything more than God and call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot be Jesus' disciple. Black and white. If your loyalties lie anywhere other than Jesus, you cannot be His disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, the hearers of Jesus were familiar with what Jesus was talking about here, they've at least heard, if they haven't seen, when a unit of Roman soldiers enters a town, goes into a house, and pulls a man out. And that man is stripped away from his family, is stripped away from his home, and he's given this crossbeam of a crucifix. They've at least heard about that if they've not seen that. And that's what happened to Jesus. Right as he's going to the cross, except he's not in a condition to carry that crossbeam, so they had someone else carry that for him because they beat him to a pulp, and so he couldn't, and so they got some other guy to carry it. So these guys have seen things like this. That was how he was going to die. He was going to hang on a cross. And so he would be strapped onto this instrument of death, and and that would be the apparatus, that crossbeam, would be part of how he would slowly and painfully be killed. And he would bear his own cross and go with those soldiers to his death. See, everyone who would witness this event would know that's a dead man walking. He is not coming back. We know that he's dead. Now back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To deny oneself every day. There are no breaks here. This is not a fun thing happening here. He's giving us the fine print. See, some of us, we like to romanticize what all this is about. Like, I take up my cross daily. You know, I, I deny myself and I do this. This is not giving up chocolate or coffee or eating out or something. You know, have you heard those people? I'm holding, bearing my cross. Didn't have my coffee today. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's not what that means. That's a splinter, not a crossbeam to a crucifix. This is denying yourself, taking up your cross every day. What you did yesterday, last week, last year, is not what matters. Because you got to do it again. And again. And again. What you are doing today and every day moving forward, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following Him. This is an invitation to die to yourself. Which is a really difficult thing to do. And and Jesus wants to be perfectly clear about what he's saying to the crowd of people that are following him. And to give a perfectly clear picture about what it means to follow him. And and to give the crowd this painting of what discipleship means. What following him means. And Jesus gave a couple pictures of counting this cost. He painted a couple of these pictures to count the cost. And before you enter into anything of significance, you count the cost. The more something costs, the more scrutiny in evaluating what the cost is of that thing. So if you're going to spend several hundred thousand dollars in buying a house, 
you really scrutinize that house. You go through all the reports. You go through escrow. You go through all the credit checks. It's a very valuable thing. You go through it. When something is cheap and nothing, yeah, then you don't. If you're at the dollar store, it's a dollar. Who cares? You don't scrutinize that thing. And then he paints these pictures. The first one, verses 28 through 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Before you go venture into a building project, you do a cost estimate. You figure out if you have the necessary resources to finish that project. You don't start building a project, just start. Do you? You don't do that. That's dumb. You start building and you don't find out that you don't have enough resources to finish the project until you're halfway through? That's what happened to a lot of the homes up in the Oakland Hills, actually. Have you guys ever seen those listings? They're like partially done. And here's the second picture he's painting. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. See, if the odds are so heavily against you in war, it's not time to lose your kingdom and it's not time to lose your life. It's time to negotiate a peace treaty. How much will it cost you to fight against an army twice the size of yours? How many lives need to be lost? How much property needs to be lost? If you truly count the cost, you'll come to the conclusion, it's time for diplomacy. This is a dumb thing for us to enter into a battle with that army there. And so the same logic and the same reasoning is applied when following Jesus. Do a cost estimate. Do you have within yourself enough to even say yes, that you're going to do this thing? Be honest with yourself. You also have to count the costs on whether if you don't do the thing. Right? So this is a great piece of investment property and you're willing to, but it's going to be a stretch. But you know that if you do it, you're going to get a lot more from it. You probably bite the bullet and you do it. If you get a hundredfold, a thousandfold, you probably bite the bullet and do it. You have to count the costs both ways. To do it and not to do it. And I think a reason why some people become Christians and then they fall away is because they don't count the cost. They just, yeah, they think it's a dollar store. You think you're just paying a buck. Maybe they didn't know that the cost when they entered into the relationship with Jesus was everything. It's everything. It is all of you. So if you need the time to figure this out, That what you have, what all of you have is worth it to invest into this thing. Take the time. Take the time. Truly evaluate for yourself whether this is worth it for you. But you have to count the cost both ways. If you do this, it's going to cost you everything. If you don't do this, it's going to cost you everything. Not in the temporary life, but also in life everlasting. There are costs both ways. This is a costly commitment. You'll be entering into an internal revolution inside of your head and your spirit for the rest of your breathing life. Sound like fun? Occupy Oakland has nothing compared to this. This is occupy your heart. You're never going to be settled. Because you have the sin nature within you. And it's always going to be battling. And you're going to be angry at things. And you're going to be unforgiving towards things. And you're going to have these fights with your spouse and your children and all this kind of stuff. It's going to be this continual battle. Loyalty to Jesus is turning away from your sin though. That sin that you are justifying is okay. Don't do that. And even if you're not practicing it, but you're advocating it elsewhere, don't do that. Count the cost and then make your decision. 
No one's forcing you to accept the price Jesus paid for your salvation. No one's forcing you to do that. Jesus willingly died for you so that you can have life everlasting and true freedom with God, but He's not going to force that on you. That wouldn't be freedom if you couldn't choose. Right? So, so He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, but He's not going to force you to come to the table and draft this peace treaty with Him if you don't want it. Now the peace treaty is your life. I'm God. I have everything. And it's not that I'm manipulating you or anything like that. It's just the, the matter of fact. And so do you want to pay that I want everything or not? And it's totally up to you. And the thing is, is that people look at God and they're saying like, oh, he's such a bully. He's, he's manipulating me. He's, But get this, right behind you are the powers of darkness and the world. You are sandwiched in between. And on that end, Satan will not reason or negotiate peace with you. You are dead. There are no terms of peace that way. So if you're coming this way, I offer you peace, but I have conditions, I have terms. If you don't accept it, it's death. He doesn't negotiate. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so on this end is Jesus, who wants to reason with you. He won't compromise, though. He won't compromise on sin. But he wants to reason with you. He wants to negotiate peace, which involves presenting to you how you can be at peace with God. Presenting to you a plan. Presenting to us terms and conditions for that peace. And so the terms and conditions are, my son died for you. And I want everything from you. And if you accept my son, who died for you, and you give me everything... We're at peace. Your other alternative is that guy doesn't negotiate and you're dead. As we evaluate the costs, are the costs worth it to enter into that peace? And if not, then you don't receive it. See, the terms for peace with God is self-denial, self-sacrifice. It's saying no to yourself. It's, It's putting up good boundaries to yourself. But if you don't, you won't have everlasting peace. You may experience it temporarily in this world, in between those bookends, whatever cause you are fighting for, whatever thing that you are definitely hoping to stand for, but it is not biblical. Those things won't follow you into eternity. Only you go. Right? You can live the way you want in your kingdom. You can sin the way you want to sin. You can do all the things you want to do in your kingdom. But when you enter into His, His terms, His conditions, it's just the same thing as whenever you go into someone else's country, into someone else's house. When when you are a guest and they are the host, it is their terms. In verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's the third cannot be my disciple. First one, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Second one is in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then the third one here, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Who can be Jesus' disciple then? I mean, this is pretty tough. Don't all of us at least fall into one of these three, if not all three? You know, if we're totally honest, isn't that true? But I think what Jesus is doing here is He's issuing us a wake-up call. Giving us a wake-up call to say, are you a disciple of mine? And He's given us this wake-up call to wake us up from our fake Weak sauce Christianity. She's like, come on! This actually counts! 
Your discipleship to Jesus, your relationship to Jesus, it really matters. Why would you want to give anything less than everything? It's only when things are of little significance that you don't care. You don't care what you give because it doesn't matter. But this is really significant. So this is going to cost you everything. Who you are, what you do, how you do it, it all matters. There are everlasting ramifications to who we are as disciples of Jesus. And there is no higher calling. None. Because everything else goes away. There's no higher calling. Are we just here to sing songs? Are we here just to talk to some people and to hang out on a Sunday? Are you coming here so, so you can feel good about coming to church? I go to church. I'm a Christian. I go every Sunday. Do you do that so you can tell people who care about you and check up on you and say, did you go to church this week so you can get them off your back? You know, why are you here? The terms of Jesus, they are uncompromising. You have to give up everything. Everything? All of it. Family, money, career, possessions, intellect, anything in your heart holding on to your heart so tightly that you rely on that for meaning and significance and a feeling safe and secure, that has to all go. All of it. And if you don't let it go, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Why? That's an idol. That's an idol that you've placed in your life, in your heart, in place of God. God who we are to rely on for meaning and security, not something else. Who we can go to for everlasting significance, for everlasting refuge. Not just the temporary fixes between the bookends. Do you know when you reach the ultimate meaning for your life? Do you know when that happens? When Jesus has all of you. Everything. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through hardship or pain or loneliness or hurt because Jesus Himself went through that. But you know what you live for and you know what you die for. And you know what you die to yourself for. Now I've shared with some of you about Mama Maggie before. She's the founder of Stephen's Children in Egypt. And how our Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt, they so need our prayers right now. There are 60 Christians who have been killed in Cairo, just Cairo, for their faith in Jesus this past year. 26 of those deaths have happened just in the last three, four months of 2011. The last quarter of 2011, almost half of those deaths happened there. They need our prayers. So that's where Mama Maggie is serving. And so she was born into this upper middle class family. Her father was a physician and they'd often go to trips out in Europe. So they'd go there and they'd eat the finest foods and, and they'd buy the, the finest of things. And she was this well-educated person and, and she became a professor. And so she gave up everything to serve the poor. She gave it all up to serve the poor. And so she gave everything up, and, and, and this is something she said at a, at a conference that I attended, and, and I'm taking out the highlights of the entire session because it was like an hour long. But this is, these are some highlights from it. it says, she says, We don't choose where to be born, but we do choose either to be sinners or saints, to be nobody or heroes. If you want to be a hero, do what God wants you to do. True love is to give and forgive. To give until it hurts. With God's grace, I left everything. And I found Him shining, waiting for me with a crown of love. After all, it was a child who spoke to me from a pile of garbage. He said, don't leave me. You know, the poor children, they are hungry, hungry every day. They are naked from clothes and shelter. They are also naked from dignity. When one has nothing, 
God becomes everything. Does Jesus have all of you? If you are truly his disciple, he will not be second to your spouse, to your children, to your family members, your job, your finances, anything. Jesus, Jesus is too radical for me. I, I can't do that. He's, he, he wants too much from me. Yes, he wants you to know the fine print because your salvation depends on it. And there is someone right behind you that will not negotiate a peace treaty with you. And your life is that costly. It is that valuable. Now how does this look practically? Because I don't think it means that we have to fire sale everything that we own. You know, Maybe for some of you it does. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is telling you. But generally speaking, I don't think the instruction is for us to give everything away. I don't think Jesus is telling us to, to live in isolation from our families. What Jesus wants is to be the influential piece of your life so that all that you are and all that you have is rightfully placed at His feet. Why? So that we can be truly free. Free from the knowledge, the understanding, and thinking of the world. Free from covetousness. Free from greed. Free from selfishness. So we can be truly free to generously give love back to God and to other people. And so Jesus concludes this lesson with a a two-verse summary involving salt. Verses 34 and 35. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So how does Jesus get from counting the costs to discipleship to salt? What's this all about? What is is he saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that the disciple of Jesus is useful when self-denial, self-sacrifice, when dying to yourself is identifiable within that follower, within that disciple. When the follower of Jesus, when the disciple of Jesus doesn't exhibit signs of self-denial, doesn't exhibit signs of self-sacrifice or dying to self, you're of no value. You're of no value. How can salt not taste like salt? How can salt not be salty? Well, in some areas of the Middle East, there are impure deposits of salt. Salt deposits so impure that they leave unsalty salt when the real salt within them eventually dissolves. Or it can be also impure when when that salt is so mixed with impurities, it just becomes useless. You, You can't use it. So we can't follow Jesus without counting the cost. And it's not a decision to be made flippantly because true discipleship, it can't be merely nominal and you remain a true disciple. It's unsalty. So take time to think through what you're committing to because it's a high price to pay. You are paying a high price, but either way you're paying a high price. It's your life. Sixty people died for their faith in Cairo in 2011. Egyptian Christians are jailed and killed for their discipleship to Jesus Christ to this day. And when they read these verses, when those Egyptian Christians read these verses, I think they know and they realize the cost much more than we do. They're living it. There are some of us who have a Christianity that is tasteless. That is unsalty salt. And if you aren't a disciple of Jesus, you are a disciple to useless salt. A disciple to the powers of darkness. If you aren't a servant of Jesus, you are a servant to a sinful world. And if you truly counted the cost, you're getting a raw deal serving the world. You're only going to get the pleasures within the bookends, but not everlasting. But if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you get the bookends and life everlasting. Either way, you pay with your life. 
Either way, it's costing you everything. It's just the other way. You just don't feel it. You're just a frog in water that's boiling. You just kind of go with it until you're dead. Where your death is eternal. See, the Christian dies to themselves, but is regenerated and has life everlasting. That way, you die. And you suffer an everlasting death. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To be a disciple of Jesus, is, I'm not saying it's easy. It's a really difficult thing to do. To forgive someone that has really wronged you, and some of you have really, really deep pains and deep traumas in your life, and, and you're called as a disciple of Jesus Christ to forgive that person, that is a really difficult thing to do. But try living as a disciple of sin for eternity. Or try harboring that bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness in your life and have it eat away at you for the rest of your living days. That's more difficult. See, those temporary highs you get from your sin, whatever that may be, whether it makes you feel good or or whether it's some substance or having an uh, adulterous affair, looking at pornography and all these type of things that, that give you these temporary highs from your sin... They're not going to be there once you die. Have you thought of that? You don't have them anymore after you die. You have them only within the bookends, but for the rest of eternity, you will be in darkness. Lost without any hope of things changing because you will be absent of God. That's what hell is. You're absent of God. You're not in His presence. That's what hell is. Where the presence of God is absent. You get to experience what you experience now because God is in our presence. What the powers of darkness and the world present are a lie. They don't offer freedom. They offer you bondage. They are working within the bookends of your life to show you that everything's good and these things feel good and stuff like that. But at the end of it, you click next and you click agree and you are in bondage. You have no choice there because your only option is hell. Jesus offers you a choice. He offers you an alternative to hell. You can choose either way with Him. That way, you only choose that way. This way, you can choose this way. So Jesus offers you a choice, and there's another option. There's heaven. See, you're given a choice to accept the invitation to the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ or to reject it. And accepting the invitation, it will cost you. But reject it, And it costs you more. See, the terms of the peace treaty between you and God, that is clear. Nothing and no one brings you into peace with God other than Jesus. Nothing or no one. It is only Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here are the conditions to the peace treaty. Number one, the only way you become his disciple is if he is your priority. So much so that the second priority looks like hate. Second term condition of the peace treaty, you die to yourself. You live for Jesus. Die to yourself, live for Jesus. Self-denial and embrace that which is of God. And number three, give up everything and depend on God for your life's meaning and your life's security. When God becomes your everything, not anything else. And so those are the conditions of the peace treaty. You already see the sides of the army, but these are the conditions for God. See, there are millions of souls who went before you, who are in heaven, who are hoping that you will accept Jesus' invitation. Right? People like Abraham, who are mentioned at the end of Luke chapter 16, and we don't have time to go into that, we'll get into that in the next few months or so. But there are also millions of souls who went before you who are in hell, who are hoping you will accept Jesus' invitation. And again, it's in Luke chapter 16. The rich man who pleaded with Abraham to warn his brothers not to follow him into hell, who who asked for Lazarus to just dip his finger in the water and just 
put a little bit on his tongue because he was just burning up. And he's hoping, you do not want to come here. Please tell my brothers. And then you have guys like Abraham and Lazarus who are, are pleading and wanting, like, please come here. This is the place to be. May you commit yourself to being a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for each and every person here. And Lord, I pray, God, that your spirit has been working within their heart and their mind. For those who have totally given their life up to you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to encourage them. I want to specifically pray for our brothers and sisters in Egypt, Lord, that are facing persecution. That they would be able to stand and not compromise on their faith. And it's so easy for me to say that while I'm so comfortable here in the United States, Lord. Help us, Lord, to feel, to understand truly the cost of following you. For those of us who are just kind of waffling through this Christian journey, Lord, I pray that you would make the fine print so evident to us that we make a choice. We make a choice to come alongside with you and to give up everything, or we don't. And we continue to live our life in a way that is not pleasing to you. But Lord, that is our choice, and I pray, Lord, that you would just make it clear to people that they wouldn't fool themselves into thinking that they are entering into the kingdom of God when in fact they are not. And Lord, I pray for those who are clearly not in the kingdom of God and have clearly not accepted your invitation. I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and their minds, that you would show them, Lord, through your word, through their prayer, through dreams, through other people, whatever means necessary, Lord, that you would show them the amount of love that you have for them and you desire for them to join you in everlasting life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.